1: When was the last time a man has been made a billionaire in steel?
0: My hunch is it's actually easier to become a billionaire in a space like this than typical tech and software. They're just more low key. You just don't hear about them, right? Like yeah. they're living in like Ohio and in Indiana and in Kentucky <laughs> and you know like <laughs> What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Our Future Podcast. I'm your host, Simran Sandhu. I'm joined by my co-founder and co-host, Michael Sakan. And you're listening to the go-to entrepreneurship podcast for young people. So you're probably like, why is Simi and Mike talking to me today? Why should I be listening to this podcast? Well, we're two guys in our early 20s. We sold our media company to Morning Brew. Now, we give you the tactics and strategies that other young people have used to win in business. Now, Mike, tell us who we're covering on today's show.
1: Yeah, so today we have a guy who we think could be, build a multi billion dollar business here very quickly. And his name is Dallas Hogginson. At first glance, you'd think this guy's, you know, little fratty, might have a zin in his mouth, <laughs> might be on the golf course <laughs> a couple of times a week. But no, this guy is absolutely grinding to reinvent commerce for the industrial world. This is one of those businesses, dude, that everybody on Twitter would just be idolizing, right? It's like blue collar. It's non-sexy. Um, and it's just like we talked about, right?
0: Yeah. Yes. It's just
1: like we talked about the non-sexy businesses are now the sexy businesses. So uh, Dallas is the
0: co-founder and CEO of Felix. Uh, you should probably mention the other co-founders names, Yeah, so the co-founders are Chris Day and Todd Lebo. And to your point, what these guys are trying to do is they are changing the way people buy and sell steel. So if you think about the steel industry, it's very outdated in how you find um, suppliers, um, how you get quotes, how you negotiate with these folks, and then also getting financing. There's a lot of friction in there. And so these guys digitize the entire playbook, the entire way that this is being done. Um, so it's full suite. The way you can go about it is you go on their platform. Um, you can request a quote in real time. You can chat with these suppliers and you can get financing right on the platform. So, um, I think it's cool, man. What about you? Yeah, I think
1: it's awesome. I love how easy it is to understand, you know, going into this story, I was like, with the complexities that Dallas was talking about being the founder and being as smart as he is, I was a little worried that we'd be in over our head. But they do a great job of keeping this platform simple in its description and marketing, right? So, people in blue collar industries don't want to be bombarded with new technology. They don't want to be seeing all button here, button there, uh, all this kind of all these various platform mechanics. They just want to know how the heck they can get their goddamn steel, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I like I like uh, Felix. It's just one platform to manage everything. There's simply yeah. nothing left out of this company manage all of your quotes and listings, find new suppliers and buyers, track your shipments and get access to financing. And uh, like many tech businesses, Simi, they did away with the spreadsheet. There's no such thing as now using a spreadsheet to track all these different websites, all these different uh, customers that you might want to buy from or clients. It's all going to be in this beautiful, kind of very simple to use tech platform Um, that's crushing it right now. And uh, their total fundraise is up to, I think uh like 25 26 million. I know their series A was for 19 million. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. they've raised a g- good amount of capital and I can't remember what what Dallas said in terms of what their total revenue's been, but I think it's been in the eight-figure range in terms of uh of GMV.
0: Well, GMV is even higher than that. Yeah. So they've processed over half a billion dollars of transactions on the platform wow. and it's crazy, right? Those are 2021 numbers, so they're probably even higher than that now. Um, But if you think about it, like he chose a great industry. If you look at the steel and aluminum industry within the U.S. alone, it's over three hundred and eighty five billion dollars annually. Right. So uh, big numbers, man. And, you know, it's one of those things where, to your point about how the Twitter world is just chasing these tech enabled businesses, um, you know, roll-ups are super, super popular with the whole Brad Jacobs book that just came out. This feels like a no-brainer to me. It's like, why hasn't someone does this with steel, aluminum, some of the other construction materials that exist out yeah. there too?
1: It's almost, you have to just go back and look to, uh, you know, what those Gilded Age billionaires were looking at. Right. So like, yeah. you know, uh U.S. Steel, the company created by uh, Carnegie and JP Morgan, right? Like, That is what minted the fortunes of America's earliest, you know, you know, legendary famous entrepreneurs. And now like Dallas is going to do it again, which I think is so cool, like 100 years later, right in that it's been the same way. Now he's like bring, you know, a little bit of a Silicon Valley touch to it. And now he a man could once again become a billionaire from steel. I don't know the last time someone (laughs) has been made, when was the last time a man has been made a billionaire in steel, right?
0: Like that would be just such a, so cool. I bet it's more common than you think. My hunch is it's actually easier to become a billionaire in a space like this than typical tech and software, um, especially in today's day, day and age. Do you think they're so? just more low-key. You just don't hear about them, right? Like no. they're living in like Ohio and in Indiana and in Kentucky. <laughs> and you know no.
1: like- yeah. true. <laughs> true. But they're they're filthy rich. Like they're just so filthy. Rich. Like so Dallas was telling us about the guy that yeah. got him into the steel business in the first place, Todd Lebo, who's also a co-founder. And he said the first time they met up, he brought him to his restaurant that he owned in Cleveland. And he was like, this guy owns Cleveland. Like, this is some mafia level stuff. <laughs> like, not only, not only did he supply the metal that is holding up the restaurant, but he's got LeBron James and, you know, Serena Williams just like chilling on the to- table in the corner. And I'm like, wow. Um, there is a tremendous amount of power and influence in the construction business uh, Dude, and a so ton of money to be money. made.
0: So yeah. much money. I mean, I grew up in Indiana, so I have an appreciation for it, but it's all blue collar money and it is on another level like the thing is is that they're just so low-key like you will meet these people in person and not know they're rich right like and i think some tech people have that vibe but you can yeah usually discern the difference right they're usually driving like a 1998 like uh ford f-150 right and it's like all banged up and stuff and you would not know this person is probably worth eight nine ten figures right and it's just it's a different mentality Um, but I like how he thought about the positioning for this, right? It's like, can you build a steel, you know, steel marketplace from scratch? That's pretty hard, right? Like you have to have uh, the right kind of connections. And so he aligned himself with uh, Todd and Chris, who were both at Majestic Steel. And Majestic Steel Mm -hmm. is a huge, huge steel company. You know, you could probably argue that had he not made those early partnerships and got them on his side early on, it would have been very hard to build this company.
1: Well, to respond to that, Dallas said it takes like an entire length of your career to understand the steel business. He's like, that's why nobody ever leaves. It's like, he's like, I am still, he told us he's on a fourth or fifth grade reading level for steel. And I was like,
0: (laughs) It's like a whole nother language.
1: Yeah. I'm like, dude, you're reading like the magic tree house while these other homies are reading like the scarlet letter. It's like, there's no, there's no comparison there. Right. That being said, he's surrounded by, he's surrounded himself with translators. Right. Um, so it's really important that whenever you're going into a new industry like that, you surround yourself with the people who can translate the language for you and teach it to you at an accelerated level.
0: Yeah, I said you know this also reminds me of our friend Adam Lawrence in Austin, Texas. He's creating a very similar company, and it's called Boom and Bucket. So it's another you know kind of B two B marketplace where you can buy uh, used construction equipment, and it's very very similar, right? So um, you know they've digitized that process, but you know one interesting theme that I found between both of these platforms is they provide financing, and my hunch is Mm. is that's arguably one of the most important pieces right because this is very very expensive like you've got to imagine the contracts on these are easily in the the millions right on the on the low end so getting financing for this stuff must be really really hard and i bet that's actually where a lot of dallas's time was spent is figuring out how to implement this financing in a way that you know you can get these get this all in real time and you don't have to fill out a shit ton of paperwork and you don't get bogged down for, you know, several months. Right.
1: right. Well, uh, the same goes with the shipping, right? They work with a network of logistics providers to, to, you know, actually get you the steel. I would assume with financing, they work with other kind of materials, uh, financier construction lenders. Right. Um, and just kind of rope you into that network. So it's like very, very quick. Right. So, Everyone's being fed information on the platform like from the people using it and like it's all in one. Um, so I think the I, I honestly feel like the the financing and the logistics side are just I feel like smaller features in the grand scheme of things um, because they're you more or less so? you can yes, I think you can get this stuff off the shelf. like I, you know these, these integrations. you can just go and approach. Uh, these trucking companies, right, and get the, the deals with them to send them business. You could do the same with the, the financing companies. I don't think th- that was like the big part of it. I think the big part of it was figuring out how do we standardize like the language of steel. Because one of the big issues as to why this hadn't been done before, Dallas was saying, is that people have a million different terminology, like terms for all the different kinds of uh, steel. Like it's very stratified, right? Which means, There's, uh, you know, just so many different versions, right, of the same material and different ways that it's described. So one of the the most Herculean tasks that Dallas had to execute on was figuring out how to standardize the language. Now, it it brings up a cool point because uh, if you remember back in history class, a lot of these emperors and dictators who were able to build a sustainable uh, society, one of the first things they did was standardize weights and measures, Right. Because if you can standardize the language of commerce, then the marketplace will thrive, and that's what I think uh, Felix has done a good job of. Like I think that was probably the most complex part of it. Not to say yeah. that the financing and the logistics wasn't.
0: I I agree. I think that is very important. I would I will still take the other side of that bet. I think long term the financing logistics will be the more important features of this, and. I guess I have an anecdotal example of this. So my uncle runs a decently large construction company in Indiana. Um, and so I, I have, dude. I, yeah, yeah. He's, he's fun. I have a hunch. Like when I w- would listen to him talk, dude, it was so old school. Like if you're listening to this, you could probably go do this in the asphalt industry and go make a lot of money for yourself because I mean, they're just depending on old relationships. You know what I mean? Like that they built up over time. It's all over the phone. They're haggling each other. It's like, oh, you know, give me a discount here. Give me a discount there. It's not super reliable. Shit never gets to you on time. Um, And then my uncle's biggest gripe was always the financing part because he would go to these regional banks and they would like just absolutely screw him on pricing and like the terms, like they were never fair. And he's like, I have, you know, I'm not even going to say the exact number, but I have X amount of money in the bank. Like I am good. Like I should not have to face these financing challenges. Like I do so much business with your bank. Like, why are you guys putting me through hell? Like, this is a very safe bet. And it's like, they just can't help themselves because they think in typical banking terms. And it's like, no, this is the needs of a very specific space. And like, they're doing transactions Hmm. in a very different way than, you guys are typically yeah. giving out loans and, and financing deals.
1: Well, Carrot made a card for content creators. Parker made one for e-commerce <laughs> founders. And I think there needs to be one for asphalt entrepreneurs. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. That, but I would actually think and return to that, that the financing for construction businesses would be a lot easier. Because like, if you remember back in like the 70s and 80s when you know, Phil Knight was trying to build Nike or... Uh, uh, Yvonne Patagonia, they both had such terrible challenges with bankers, right? Yeah. Nobody could understand, you know, this new business that they were building. Startups just couldn't get capital back in the day. It was it was really hard. Um, I would think that construction businesses have much more simple PLs and that, you know, since you know it's kind of a more traditional space, the banks would be,
0: you know, more willing to to back those
1: kinds of businesses. But maybe still, I mean you maybe they don't understand size. it.
0: Maybe you reach a certain size. Maybe like the largest paving companies out there probably don't have these challenges because they're dealing with like the biggest bankers. But I think it's like the small and medium size definitely probably face these challenges. Um, Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like they, because they have to deal with regional players. So, right. And they have to
1: all, and they have to constantly be over leveraged, right? And constantly be a little bit behind as opposed to probably your uncle's business now that's like more mature but it's still small in the grand scheme of things so, compared to yeah, like a massive small. construction firm. Still yeah.
0: Small. Yeah. And so that's why I think Dallas's platform could be super helpful in this process. I also think like, you know, we take this for granted, but steel is in like everyday part of our lives. Like it's in this room that we're sitting in it's in yeah. your fridge, it's in our cars, it's trains, ships, wherever. Right. And it's yeah. like, this is a very valuable resource. So I think he will stretch into these other areas, like to your to what you were signaling in the beginning, like copper will probably commerce. go after. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it just makes a lot
1: of sense. Yeah. I mean, this model could be applied to a lot of construction materials as well as other commodities, right? Because at the end of the day, steals commodity. Um, you know, he has the tech to bring it into a bunch of different verticals. Um, and it could be a monster platform, man, if you can get even a small percentage of the $300 billion per year steel market, or that includes uh, aluminum, but something in the hundreds of billions just for steel, right? Like that's an amazing market to just go after and conquer, and then maybe even expand to to a few more. I also think down the line, you know, he could totally, you know, verticalize the transportation. He could totally verticalize the financing, build his own kind of lender for this space. yeah. And it could become even more powerful, right? I do want to mention though, something that, um, you know, some marketplaces in these more blue collar traditional industries have been suffering from. So there was this company called Convoy and it was started yeah. by the guy who used to lead Amazon shopping and it was essentially Uber for trucks. So essentially a dispatching, um, freight platform, software platform, kind of like Flexport, but for the trucking industry, um, raised hundreds of millions from Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, um, you know, had a 3.8 billion dollar valuation a year before it shut down and that was I think a little under a year ago. And the argument that everyone was making like, you know, kind of the the press analysis and stuff is that at the end of the day, like the shipping and the freight industries depend on humans who can route things and deal with all these issues and like all the bullshit that comes along with transporting physical goods and getting placed getting things from A to B. Um, so that argument was interesting to me in that, you know, some of these spaces, like you want to bring tech to them, you want to be able to automate a lot of it, but, but some will just never be fully automated. You know, like there always need to be that human component and in a a business like this, right. relationships are also key. Right. So I think there could be a challenge and I'm not saying Felix could fall into this, mainly because they haven't even raised that much money. Like they raised a pretty healthy amount for a Series A, like 19, 20 million. But were they to raise hundreds of millions, I think they could find themselves in the same problem. And that all that money they raised going into technology would not be the panacea, would not be the cure for all the issues across the board, right, in the steel industry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. It's like, you definitely want to streamline the entire workflow, but you can't replace every single thing that's taking place. I mean, the convoy example, you know, to take that a step further, it's probably a little bit of they raised too much money too quick. And then like, weren't exactly intentional about how they were spending it. Um, Mm -hmm. and probably like also, you know, I've, I've gotten a lens into a lot of how I've gotten a lens into how these venture founders think. And what I've noticed is like, You know, a lot of them dictate progress in a way that is just focused on getting to the next round, right? So it's like, hey, if we get to X amount of users or we get X amount of transactions, this will get us to our series B. And that's a very interesting line of thinking versus like what I'm guessing you and I think, which is like, yeah, let's just try to get to X amount of dollars, right? And like, let's let's just build a good business. Like we don't even think about it in terms of next funding round.
1: Yeah, why did everyone stop thinking about things in terms of dollars? Like I feel like that's the (laughs) metric you need to use. Uh kinda like the currency for our society. Like uh no. But I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I remember the, the well in the article, the guy was like, Yeah, we just lost interest from VCs for late stage unprofitable businesses. I'm like, Yeah, yeah. Uh, But Flexport's also been suffering lately. Ryan Peterson had to come in and take control again to return the company to profitability because they raised too much money. And, uh, you know, they were really hot during COVID because everybody was buying shit from around the world. Supply chain issues were at their peak, right? Same thing happened with Convoy. Um, The market turned, right? So I don't know. The steel industry feels a little um, less cyclical. It feels like a little bit more stable,
0: uh, and yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, he'll be smart with his money. I do think, you know, he likes Brad Jacobs. I think he will follow that model and he'll go on an m and spree here soon. Um, and, you know, the guiding thesis will be just buying these companies um, that he can get at a good price. I think something interesting from the Brad Jacobs playbook that I learned from was his ability to buy um, in tertiary markets, right? So, whenever he would enter a new space, he wouldn't try to go head to head with the number one player. He would always come after like number two, number three, and he would just go to areas where they aren't paying attention, like rural Mississippi mm. and things like that. Um, and trash collecting businesses. Yes, yes. And that's equipment he, rentals. That, that's how he was able to grow, is just like getting them at a good price. And, you know, something that I thought, was really smart about his deal making process is whenever he would buy a company, even in its worst case scenario, it was a good deal. Um, and so I think like especially when you know most people think about M and A, they probably think about it in the optimistic use case or the optimis- optimistic scenarios. It's like oh, if things go right or if we hit this growth rate, like this will be a good deal. But it's like the Warren Buffett thing, right? Like you need to be smart about not making dumb decisions, right? Like that's what you need yeah. to avoid more than trying to get a good deal.
1: You know, it'd be crazy if Dallas had the Twitter, like he, he actually pulled this off and his Twitter description becomes first first billionaire in steel since Carnegie. But yeah, great, great conversation. Let's move on to the next person.
0: Yep. Hit us with it. Who we got?
1: All right, cool. All right. So we have a company based out of Israel called Tulu. And Tulu is founded by Yishai Lahavi and Yale Shimmer. So, and they've built the usage economy platform. And to put that in the layman's terms, a vending machine business. So uh, at your apartment complex, what Tulu will do is design a secure uh, kind of vending machine setup, but it's really, really big. So it's not just like, you know, like a Cheetos or Pepsi one. And it's full of items that you could utilize in the household, right? So think vacuum cleaners, brushes, uh, PS5s, uh, VR headset, right? So like all these high value items that like few people would probably make the investment in buying like a Dyson vacuum or, you know, like a really expensive piece of technology, but that could be shared by all the residents of an apartment complex and make it really close and like simple for them to, to go and grab these things. So the business has been pretty successful. Apartment complexes are biting on this technology. Um, you know, fully. You know, no doesn't need an attendant. It's it's a full self service checkout. Twenty cities, seventy thousand households, two hundred thousand transactions, um, and you know they'll even do like scooter garages. Like they'll do like a little box and like you can rent a scooter. So it's all about driving more revenue for uh, the apartment complexes and making residents, you know, happier in this new usage economy where we don't actually own things, but we just have to re- keep renting them.
0: Look, it makes a ton of sense, <laughs> right? It's like we share cars, we're sharing homes. So why not share the things that go inside the home? So the the business on its own totally makes sense. Um, yeah. I will say this, when I was looking at the website, uh, they had this phrasing in there that was like, we're elevating the living space that, you, you know, you live in or something along those lines. Yeah, and it gave yeah, me yeah. like, uh it gave me flashbacks to adam newman at WeWork with the whole we're elevating the world's consciousness and i was like oh no <laughs> well you know it's you know adam
1: newman's new apartment company like a16z yeah. gave him 350 million Flo? the biggest check in their history yeah. it's called flow they just opened their first apartment in fort lauderdale um And you know, part of the experience for building a better apartment complex was like installing a restaurant and doing exercise classes and doing like a community (laughs) session. Um, I don't think there's anybody that would say that the apartment complex industry has good customer service or a good user experience. I actually think that these apartment complexes uh, do a terrible job of facilitating community, of helping you get the things you need, of even responding to maintenance requests, right? True. The ridiculous kind of need for humans to have shelter creates this weird mismatch between the apartment complex and the customer. And that, yeah, you need a place to live. We gave you a place to live. We're not going to give you any more, right? And apartments are already so expensive. So I don't know. I just think things that can uplevel apartments. This idea that Adam Newman has is right on its head. I don't know if he'll be able to execute on it properly. Maybe he's raised too much money. I don't I don't really know. I just think that there's a I think a lot of opportunity in making living in apartments better, especially as homes are so expensive and everyone's, you know, kind of renting. The the usage economy, the sharing economy is, is going to be huge.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought what was interesting is they claim they're changing the consumption paradigm, which is I need something, so I'm going to buy it, to now I need something, so I'm going to use it. The question that I have is, what does the price or cost need to be for something before you say, hey, it actually makes sense to just use uh, someone else's or share this, versus like, I just wanna own it outright, right? I think that Mm -hmm. makes sense with homes, I think that makes sense with cars, but am I gonna share a basketball? You know what I'm saying? Like, do I really need to share like uh, a, you know, like a vacuum with like all the other people on my floor or all the other people in the apartment? Like, I probably would be okay just buying that for myself.
1: You know, I think you and I would actually be like fans of this company, though, because we love convenience, right? Like, no,
0: for sure. I'm just saying there's like, like snacks the and stuff public. But yeah, but we got vending machines already. Yeah, this does,
1: it's definitely more, I think it's definitely more for high-end apartments and complexes as opposed to like, you know, run-of-the-mill apartments and wherever, you know, off the cut of any big city. It's definitely for more like premium locations. Um, But yeah, I mean, it it would be cool to get access to all this stuff that like, you just don't want to pay for. Like for me, I don't even have a vacuum here because I just, you know, didn't really want to pay for one. Um, And I kind of just borrow my mom's, but if my apartment complex had something like that, I would consider it. I think that uh it does it does feel like kind of futuristic there there was a thing on their website it was like you know uh get in front of the next generation of consumers where you can partner with them, you know obviously so, probably sell your products to at Tulu at, a, at wholesale prices to expose customers to get like a taste of your product and then like maybe eventually buy it right so oh interesting. it's definitely an it's yeah, it's definitely a new way to like introduce customers to new consumer products. I think that's kind of like their bigger vision is like, if they can make the vending machine ubiquitous, what goes inside it will be a a massive business just for placement purposes.
0: Well, that reminds me of um, you know our friend Akash at Glimpse. He's since pivoted from the idea, but the the entire premise was they were doing product placements inside Airbnbs, and it was an advertising play. So you'd expose these people to new brands; they would like their experience with them, then they'd go and buy these products, um, which is kind of a very long term play. Um, But I could see that, right? Like it's like you use something enough times from this vending machine equivalent kind of thing that they have going on. And it's like, Hey, when I do need to buy one, maybe I move away from the apartment. I'll just go buy that brand. I'm already used to it. It did a good enough job yeah. for me. So let's do it.
1: You know, your buddy, a cautious business. I know it kind of, they, they pivoted. They still got on
0: the Forbes thing for that though. Right? Yeah. They had like real customers. I think his big worry was that like it's, it yeah, was going to fizzle out. Like there's not a mainstream use case for this, right? The market like,
1: for that doesn't seem that big. Like I, I honestly yeah, it's feel individual like- individual
0: homes, which is hard, yeah, right?
1: I honestly feel like the, the actual value in it is too low. Like it's too hard to attribute a buying decision to something someone saw on an Airbnb for like a weekend. You know what I mean? I just feel like it's just too flimsy. It just doesn't feel like the right uh, customer response marketing.
0: I would agree. And that's where this company, Tulu, has you know, kind of an advantage on them is that they're getting everyone in the apartment building to to effectively use this, right? So, And
1: they're getting so much data on usage, time between usage, right? Willingness yeah. to pay, peak hours, all this stuff. And that's data they can also share with the brands that are kind of inside their little vending machines, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I came across this interesting way on how to think about data, um, which was you know, you need to like the the value is getting access to proprietary data makes sense. Right. But the real value will be being able to embed that in anyone's workflow on any given day. Right. Like, so for example, um, like just having the data isn't enough. And I think that's where we usually get hung up with any of these data products or these data plays. It's like, what what can you do with that information that actually makes this valuable?
1: Yeah. I, I, that actually speaks to what I was going to mention when we were talking about Dallas about uh, how they built their software company, but it's a conversation for another time. One thing I will mention is like, you know, obviously you're actually a fan of Adam Newman because you love the TV show. You think that uh, he actually does understand insights, knows how to execute, whatever. Um, what do you think about this futuristic living concept? Like you and I have both done short-term leases wherever we've gone. We hate being locked in. We like to move. We like to move around. We're building our future in the early days. Um, there's another good story about this and that this guy, uh, Bill Smith. So he started shipped. It was a, uh, kind of Instacart competitor for grocery delivery that was sold to Target for $500 million. He has a cool story. So, uh, Bill started as like a young cat and he built a prepaid Visa card business that apparently got acquired by some financial services firm, right? From there, he built, he, he gets into grocery delivery and the main thing that made his company different was he targeted the south while Instacart was building in like the west and the east coast so the company was has is still headquartered in Birmingham Alabama and their focus on this demographic that kind of Instacart wouldn't ever care about expanding to for at least a number of years enabled them to like really like create a stake and build a 500 million dollar delivery business in a short amount of time now he's building a company called Landing which is like Kind of yeah. a, a COVID, a very COVID focused business, but essentially it's like an annual membership. I think, and there's two ways to go. You could either pay an annual membership or pay one off. But short term flexible leases in you know a bunch of cities, you know, mainly like the Sun Belt, right? Like Atlanta, Phoenix, San Francisco, San Jose, right? Um, that would give you a fully furnished apartment with a couple months, you know, on the docket, and then you can move on after that. And I think it was probably really useful for like remote employees. But when I looked at it, the prices were really high and obviously people are just going to be doing that a lot less now because they're all super expensive. Yeah. They're all super expensive. I don't think that business model can work, but I do understand it. I would love it to work. I would love it to be affordable. Right. Um, I think that the 12 month
0: lease is kind of an archaic concept. You know, I think I, I think that's a fair argument. In my mind, I see it as like, it's valuable when you think about it in, a, in kind of a temporary measure, right? So like, hey, you know, I just graduated college. I'm gonna live in this apartment for like two years max. Uh, maybe I just got my first job, right? And so I could see myself using these services. But at some point, I'm gonna want my own thing. I'm gonna want my own house. I'm gonna want my own car. I'm gonna want, you know, whatever that, that looks like. And I'm not going to be so interested in sharing with other people. And so I think in, you know, it, it kind of comes to like two factors. One is like, is this a temporary thing for someone? And are you getting them at the right point in the right situation at the right time and all that yeah, stuff, right? Great point. Uh, yeah. And I think if you're not able to do one or two of the one, uh, one of those two things, then it's going to be very hard to make this a sustainable business, like even with an apartment, like how, what is the average tenure for like someone living in an apartment building in a specific city, right? I'm guessing like a few years max before they up and up and leave. Um, so that's probably my hunch with how these things usually work. Um, but I think like, you know, what happens even with WeWork, right? Like people work in a WeWork until they graduate out of it, right? And then they want their own office space. You made this,
1: yeah, you made this point about simplify as well, right? It's like, you know, kind of like hinge or whatever, like, People churn out of the platform. It serves its value Tulu, at
0: that time. It, it serves, serves its, its value. And then it doesn't. <laughs> but there's, <laughs> like...
1: always a, there's always a new generation coming in and out, right? So when that yeah. person leaves the apartment, there's another young college kid who's working in his first job who can't afford a vacuum cleaner yet, right? He's yeah. probably going to use those services. I think it's also a location play, right? They don't need to follow those customers anywhere else. They're in that apartment complex. And as long as there continues to be, uh, you know, people... And cities, you need a place to live, right? So they're in a good location. Yeah. One thing I would mention before we wrap, I mean, they've, they've raised like five, the $5 million Series A. Like, I feel like- They the, raised more
0: now. They raised over 20 million
1: total. Oh, in total? Yeah, yeah. Got it. So I was going to say like the expenses of building those units and getting them around the world. I mean, uh, they're in Europe and uh, US and all over the place. It's got to be really expensive uh, to, to manufacture.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think they've had over 70,000 people use their, pla- their their company in some way, shape, or form, and they yeah. have exposure across 19 cities. But I agree. Like, getting the actual products in there, the replacement is probably also expensive, too, if you think about it. Right. Because, dude, I mean, l- just look at those scooters, right? Like, anytime you get, like... Uh, people trash those birds and lines, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Even the people that, yeah, even the people who are supposed to be like uh, replacing them on a daily basis. Like, I was literally standing on the corner of an Austin street and this guy was chucking them in the back of his truck. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> dude, that's no regard for dude, their, their product. Like, when I unreal. was in
1: college, people used to, for fun, just throw scooters into like lakes and like sink them (laughs) to the bottom it's like whatever you give a product to like that's why communism could never work bro you know like if you make something available to everyone to share like it'll just be destroyed like
0: people just like like it it just they won't care dude who's to say people don't do that with this vacuum right like they take (laughs) this vacuum (laughs) up like fucking it up <laughs> and it's like all right well where do i return this like bro it's like this is not even in working condition anymore
1: i still think to a really cool idea there's this movie i used to i, I watch once and it was really interesting and it thought around me a lot of your boy akash and the fact he didn't know about this movie made me think he probably needed to pivot but it's called keep keeping up with the joneses and keeping up with the joneses is like a term people use to be like okay like uh are you staying in uh, kind of lockstep with the people in your neighborhood. You get in the new car, you upgrading, blah, blah, blah. Keeping up with the Joneses, what they do is they insert themselves in like wealthy suburban communities. Okay. And they're a, this, a fake family, right? Like really attractive uh, dad, mom, girl, whatever, son, um, you know, but they're not actually family members. And their entire job is to influence the community with products, right? So- the dad will have like a brand new lawnmower that you can sit on with a touchscreen. The mom will be like having the craziest, uh, fashion. The, the son at school is showing everyone his new game boy. And like every week they meet with this like, um, kind of uh, marketing person who's like giving them a score for how much they sold of different products. Um, but the, the entire idea was just to permeate, uh, influence through these communities. And I was like, damn, that's not really been something that's been productized before, right? Uh, so there's definitely value there. There's no doubt that, like, you know, having physical consumer products in these like uh, high, uh, small communities where people can see each other using them would be valuable to the brands that uh, that are putting their products in these Tulus.
0: I feel like that's a great, you know, futuristic story to wrap the episode on. You we're living in home? a we're living in a yeah. dystopia,
1: bro. We're literally we living are. in a dystopia. Um well, th- fast. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our future podcast. I uh, had a blast doing this again with you guys. And make sure to be subscribed on YouTube. Check us out on the listening platforms like Spotify and Apple. Um, and stay frosty. Hopefully stay frosty. You, hopefully you can vacuum those floors tonight. <laughs> <laughs>